Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 242. Today's big Bible questions are, did a child really slay a giant in the Bible? Is David and Goliath about how you can slay giants? Well, happy Tuesday, friends. We are rejoicing in our city today because the two closest fires to the Bible Reading Podcast headquarters are both getting better and better. Shout out to Cal Fire, one of the most impressive organizations, honestly, I've seen in a long time. Uh, great leaders, great communicators, great work, and one of the best examples I've really ever seen of government in action. We had around 2,000 firefighters at one time battling the two fires near us. I think it's about the same number right now, in addition to all of the other fires burning California at the moment. Uh, coordinating thousands of people successfully is really quite the task. It's very impressive, and Cal Fire has done a great job at that, and they do like um, uh, updates every day, morning and night, and I'm telling you, these people are like so sharp and on top of it and impressive. It's pretty amazing. So thanks for listening to my Cal Fire's Awesome podcast. Today's Bible readings include one of the most iconic chapters and stories in the entire Bible, David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, as well as Lamentations 2, Psalms 33, and Romans 15. Now, how could we not focus on David and Goliath today? Well, allow me to start our focus with a special tip of the cap to Mythbusters, and we'll have our own little Bible Mythbusters here. So, top five myths about the story of David and Goliath. Here we go. Number one, David was a child who defeated the giant Goliath. Well, that's a myth. You've seen the pictures of David battling Goliath, right? Very often, at least in kids' Sunday school materials, we see a picture of, you know, like an 11 or 12-year-old kid, sometimes with long hair, loosing a stone at Goliath, the bearded giant. The fact is, by the time 1 Samuel 17 rolls around, David is not really a child at all, but a young adult and quite an accomplished one at that. For one, we know from this passage that he's already killed at least one lion and at least one bear, and those, you know, guys are pretty big. But the proof that actually disproves the myth is found in the chapter before this one, 1 Samuel 16, 18, where it's talking about uh, Saul's looking for a musician to play for him, and it says, one of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Well, that valiant man, who is apparently a warrior of some kind already, is tiny little David. Only he isn't tiny and little, but a somewhat experienced dude. Now, to be fair, people get the idea that David was a boy from verse 42 of our chapter, which says, When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth. But the Hebrew word there, which is the Hebrew word na'ar, can also be translated as young adult or servant or something along those lines. It has quite of a broad uh, range of meanings, and either of those are a better choice than, say, child or whatever, because of the reasons we've already said. He's called a man above, and he's called a warrior. Well, let's go read the passage, and then we're going to come back and try to bust four more myths about David and Goliath. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sokah in Judah and camped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. 
The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistines' camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall, and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was a bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked him. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the second, and Shammah, the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend to his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening for forty days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son David, Take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these ten portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, Do you see this man who keeps coming out and comes to defy Israel? The king will make the man who kills him very witch and give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding, That is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's oldest brother Eliab listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with them. Why did you come down here? he asked. Who who did you leave these few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now? protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Paul, so he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, Don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. 
But Saul replied, You can't fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. Then David had his own military clothes put on, then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took just his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, Whose son is is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as you live, I don't know, Abner replied. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. All right, some more myths here. Myth number two, as you've already seen. David killed Goliath with his sling. Now, this one's a little bit tricky because the Hebrew is slightly ambiguous, but I take from verse 51, which says David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. 
I take that to mean that David knocked Goliath out with a rock to the forehead and then killed him with his sword. Now, this Hebrew there is a little bit ambiguous too, so it could be that David killed Goliath with his sword and then chopped his head off, or it could be that David killed Goliath by cutting his head off. Well, we don't know because we don't have an autopsy report, but it would seem that the sling to the head didn't do the killing, but rather the sword. Myth number three. David took up five stones because Goliath had brothers. Now, <laughs> you know who is far and away the number one peddler of Bible myths? Yes, that's right. Preachers. Preachers are the worst. Well, they're the worst ever at making up things about the Bible. Now, don't get offended, fellow preachers. I'm a preacher too. But man, oh man, our group can sometimes draw conclusions that the Bible doesn't. We can make up stuff and speculate and then put that speculation into the sermon as a fact because it sounds clever or interesting. Then the people take it as absolutely gospel factual and then they spread it to their kids and lo and behold, a myth is born. Thus it was, I'm sure, that the thing about extra stones for Goliath's brothers started. The fact is, the Bible never even hints that this is a possibility, and at this point, there really is no way for David to have known that Goliath had brothers either. As far as we know from the Bible, Goliath only had three brothers, that is assuming 2 Samuel 21-22 is speaking of Goliath and his brothers. Maybe it is, it probably is, we don't know for sure, but, you know, I don't know, maybe that fifth stone was for Goliath's dad? Regardless, there's just no evidence whatsoever in the Bible that David was intending to slay Goliath's other brothers. That's kind of a made-up thing. All right, myth number four. David properly disposed of Goliath's body in a respectful manner, including his head. Okay, okay, maybe that's not really a myth, but I think if you were to ask people... What do you think they did with the body of Goliath after he died? Most people would say, I don't know, they probably buried it. Well, that's not exactly what happened because what apparently happened is David carried Goliath's head around with him for quite some time. We don't know how long, but according to verse 54, David took Goliath's head, which I'm sure was massive, and brought it to Jerusalem, but he left Goliath's weapons in his own tent. Not only that, verse 57 says, when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. David's carrying that that thing around. <laughs> Holy cow, can you imagine carrying this big, drippy, nasty giant's head? You're probably carrying it by, you know, the hair. And you know what? They didn't have suave and, uh, well, I'm trying to think of shampoo brands. I'm a guy, so uh, Pert, is that a brand? Um, Great value, (laughs) whatever the Walmart brand is. Oh, Dove. Dove makes a shampoo, or is it a body wash? I don't know. Anyway, they didn't have shampoo there then. And so, how gross and disgusting and oily and probably bloody, too, was this giant Goliath's head. And... You know, the I'm not even talking about the neck part where all the, you know, dangly stuff is coming out. Anyway, David's carrying this thing around and it, he comes to Saul with with Goliath's head in his hands. That's just crazy. Okay, I'm you know, like I said, that's not a myth, but I did want to point that out. Finally, this one is kind of a myth. Uh and it's the most important one and what we're going to focus on a little bit today. The myth number five, the ultimate application of the story of David and Goliath is that you and I 
are giant killers because we are on God's side. And God will allow us to defeat every evil and every uh, rival sports team or opponent or whatever. Because the application of David and Goliath is, we should be like David and go kill our Goliaths. Look out, Goliaths, I'm coming for you. Except that's not really what's going on here, is it? Let's go to our friend Tim Keller for the second day in a row, I think, on the real meaning of Christmas. Oh, wait, I mean the real and ultimate meaning and application of Old Testament stories like David and Goliath. Well, here's what Keller says. He says, let's look at the story of David and Goliath. Who is that about? If you see it as only about David and Goliath, is it good news? Do you remember what the word gospel means? Gospel means good news, joy-inflicting news. Is the story of David and Goliath all by itself just as it is good news? No, it's not. Do you know why? If you don't see it pointing, as Peter says, to the sufferings and glory of Christ, it's not good news, it's bad news. Do you know why? Well, what it's saying, if it only points to David and telling us to be like David, is you need to be courageous like David. You need to go out there and you need to fight, face the giants of your life. You need to summon up the faith, summon up the courage. There's the giant of failure. There's the giant of criticism. There's the giant of suffering. You can do it. Go beat them. Well, is that good news? Do you read with that story and weep with joy? Is it a gospel? No, it's bad news. Now, if you're teaching a Sunday school class for kids and you just say, now, boys and girls, we've studied David and Goliath today in Sunday school. Go home and be like David. Well, the little kids aren't smart enough to realize they should sue their teacher for malpractice, and they're not smart enough to realize it would be better if they didn't know that story at all, because what they're going to do is they're going to say, hey, now I can do that. But they can't. Halfway through life or three quarters of the way through life or somewhere out there, they're going to find out, no, they can't do that because it wasn't good news. It didn't penetrate. It didn't melt their heart. Here's the point. Unless I see David as, first of all, pointing to my real David, the true David, the ultimate David, the true champion, the one Jesus who went up against the ultimate giant of sin and the law and the death, he didn't go at the risk of his life like human David did. Jesus went at the cost of his life. And because of the victory that he won there on the cross, his victory is credited to me. Why? What's so important by that? about that? I will never, says Keller, deal with the giant of failure in my life unless I know God is absolutely for me no matter what because of Jesus. I will never deal with the giant of criticism and disapproval in my life unless I know I have the approval of the one who counts because of Jesus. How do I know that? I'll never be like David unless I melted myself with the good news, melted with the joy of seeing what the ultimate true and better David, Jesus, did for me. Do you see that? Now, boys and girls, be like David. It's the seed on the outside. It's on the surface, on the ground, but that doesn't penetrate. But now, boys and girls, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, do you see whom he was really talking about? When Jesus says every part of the scripture is about me, until you actually see that the Bible is not just a compendium of instruction and stories, but it is one big true story, then when you read the Bible, it'll be basically about you, what you must do. If you see the Bible is basically about Jesus and what he has done, then you'll be able to do yourself. Instead of the Bible becoming like a compendium 
of instructions and stories which will crush you into the ground. It's turning into a joy-inflicting story, and you're being changed by the gospel. You will be able to handle the giant of criticism. You will be able to handle the giant of suffering. If you, first of all, see the ultimate giants, the only giants that could really bring you down, sin and death and wrath have been handled already by Jesus. So the point of what Keller is saying is that stories like David and Esther and Jonah and all the stories we have in the Old Testament, historically true stories, but what if we're not great heroes like them? The point of those stories is it points us to Jesus, the true and ultimate hero. Jesus is the true and ultimate David who faced the giant of sin and death alone and won the victory for us. And I'm going to play a little clip of Keller talking about that at the end of this message. I don't believe it's copyright, so I think it'll be okay. Uh, that, that will help us to understand a little bit more how the message of David and Goliath is not go out there and be a hero like David and kill all your Goliaths. The message of the whole Bible, as Jesus says in Luke, is all about him. It points to him. And Jesus is the true and greater David who took on the Goliath of sin and death for us and won the victory. So that victory is credited to our account. Think about that for a moment as we read the rest of our scriptures. And then, like I said, we're going to close with Keller putting a finer point on what I just said. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 1. And again, this is written like the Lamentations we read yesterday as a Hebrew acrostic poem beginning with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph. How the Lord has overshadowed daughter Zion with his anger. He has thrown down Israel's glory from heaven to earth. He did not acknowledge his footstool in the day of his anger. Baith. Without compassion, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has demolished the fortified cities of daughter Judah. He brought them to the ground and defiled the kingdom and its leaders. Gimel. He has cut off every horn of Israel in his burning anger and withdrawn his right hand in the presence of the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything. Daleth. He has strung his bow like an enemy. His right hand is positioned like an adversary. He has killed everyone who was the delight of his eye, pouring out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. Hey, the Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up all its palaces and destroyed its fortified cities. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation within daughter Judah. Vav. He has wrecked his temple as if it were merely a shack in a field, destroying his place of meeting. The Lord has abolished appointing festivals and Sabbaths in Zion. He has despised king and priest in his fierce anger. Zion. The Lord has rejected his altar, repudiated his sanctuary. He has handed the walls of her palaces over to the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. Chaith. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not restrain himself from destroying. He made the ramparts and walls grieve. Together they waste away. Taith. Zion's gates have fallen to the ground. He has destroyed and shattered the bars on her gates. Her king and her leaders live among the nations. Instruction is no more, and even her prophets receive no vision from the Lord. Yod. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Kaf, my eyes are worn out from weeping. I am burning within. My heart is poured out in grief because of the destruction of my dear people, because infants and nursing babies faint in the streets of the city. Lameth, they cry out to their mothers, Where is the, gram and wi- the grain and wine? 
as they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city as their life pours out in the arms of their mother's name. What can I say on your behalf? What can I compare you to, daughter Jerusalem? What can I liken you to so that I may console you, virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Noon. Your prophets saw visions for you that were empty and deceptive. They did not reveal your iniquity and so restore your fortunes. They saw pronouncements for you that were empty and misleading. Samach. All who pass by scornfully clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Pay. All your enemies open their mouths against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth, saying, We've swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for. We have lived to see it. Ion. The Lord has done what he planned. He has accomplished his decree, which he ordained in days of old. He is demolished without compassion, letting the enemy gloat over you and exalting the horn of your adversaries. Chade. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord, Wall of daughter Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief in your eyes, no rest. Kof. Arise, cry out in the night. From the first watch of the night, pour out your heart like water before the Lord's presence. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who are fainting from hunger at the head of every street. Resh. Lord, look and consider to whom you have done this. Should women eat their own children, the infants they have nurtured? Should priests and prophets be killed in the Lord's sanctuary? Sheen. Both young and old are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without compassion. Tav. You summon those who terrorize me on every side, as if for an appointed festival day. On the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. My enemy has destroyed those I nurtured and reared. Psalm 33, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a lyre. Make music to him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. The counsel of the the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen to be his own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eyes on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield, for our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. Romans 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant to the circumcised of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. Again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people and again praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. Now, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gospels, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the Gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you. Whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through and be assisted by you for my journey once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Right now I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to them in material needs. So when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. May the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. And now, as promised, I am going to play for you a little clip from Pastor Tim Keller's message that we read earlier about how Jesus is the true and greater Moses and Abraham and Esther and David. This is where we will close out today. So I will say good day and Godspeed to you, friends. And do listen to this. It's one of the best things I've ever heard in a message. Is David and Goliath basically about you and how you can be like David and Goliath or basically about him, the one who really took on the mate, the only giants that can really kill us, you see? And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when that happens, then you start to read the Bible new, you know. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden. 
a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the, wor- into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up in discipline. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Is that a type? See, that's not typology, that's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them, to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. 